We are on the last Sunday for John the Baptist. Only got to spend two weeks on him, and uh, I'm excited that we get to come to the end of this series, but not excited because Jesus said this is a guy, this is the greatest guy who has ever lived. That's a pretty big compliment from the one who created you, right? I thought about like Jesus talking about Judas right before Judas was about to betray him. And uh, Jesus looks at Judas and he said, you know, it's better if your mom never bore you. Like this is the opposite of that conversation. This is like no other human being has ever come to this planet as great as John the Baptist. Jesus had great um, great respect for John, and I think there's a lot of different reasons why, and if you, if you want to pick up on last week's message, we talked a little bit about that, but now we come to the end of John's life. This greatest man ever is now rotting in a dungeon. He ends his life spending a year in Herod's dungeon. Not a nice place to be. He misses everything. He misses the miracles of Jesus. He misses the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't get to be one of the 5,000 who are fed. He doesn't get to be there and see that lame walk in the blind sea. He doesn't get to see any of that. He baptizes Jesus, and that's pretty much it for John. He goes to a dungeon, and he, all the information he gets about what Jesus is doing is secondhand. It's like he's waiting at that. I gave this illustration last week because I think it's really good. He's like one of those guys that waits for the Marvel uh, Theater big time uh, uh, spectacular to come out at the, at the local movie house and it's, a, it's, it's like the, the end game or the, you know, whatever it is that you're waiting for. And he's waiting out there for 24 hours. It's raining. It's a terrible, it's a terrible experience. He's got his little tent there and he's got his little chair there. He's going to be the first one in the theater. He's going to get the best shot, the best, scene, the best uh, eye view for this great movie that he's been waiting for. He's been preaching about it. He's been telling people about it. The doors fly open, everybody jams in in front of him. The doors shut, they lock, and he gets left out in the ring. He misses everything. I have to think to myself, that kind of a moment would create in me kind of a little bit of a despair. And John finds himself in this feeling of despair. One of the hardest things in being a shepherd of a church, being a pastor of a church, is dealing with the despair in people's lives. I can remember one time I went to the hospital and I was asked to go there by the family because their, their son, their 20-year-old son, had just OD'd. And I got off the elevator and I can remember not the scene, not the, not the view from the elevator in the hallway, that blank wall, white walls in front of me. What I remember is the screaming because the minute the doors opened, I could hear this mom wailing from the other side of the floor. I didn't need to ask where her son was and where this was going down because I just followed the sound of her voice. I walked down the hallway and I walked into one of the most traumatic scenes I've ever seen. A mom completely beside herself, screaming for her son to come back. I can remember being at the side of a crib on the children's wing when I was invited by the grandparents of this two-year-old who had gone to a children's um, facility. What do you call those? Uh, yeah, daycare. Thank you very much. It's the gray hair. 
the grandparents had been called in because this two-year-old was in this daycare facility and the leader of the daycare lost her temper with this little girl and picked her up and threw her across the room. She ended up taken by the paramedics to the hospital and by the time I got there, she had tubes sticking out of her two-year-old body that would just break anybody's hearts. And I looked at the parents and the parents looked at me and they simply asked one question, why would God ever allow this to happen? The despair that we go through in the run of our lives sometimes is unbearable. We don't know how we can take it at times. You all have experienced despair. I experienced one of the most personal moments of despair when I was told my dad was dying several years ago now and I tried to make it home before he passed away and I got as far as the New Jersey airport when my brother called me and said that my dad had passed. My final journey home from New Jersey to Halifax, I spent in my seat bawling uncontrollably. The woman next to me, I'm sure she thought something was up because she ended up moving and a guy came over and took her seat. And uh, I don't know if he was an airline marshal or what it was, but she was a little nervous sitting beside a middle-aged man who couldn't control himself. The despair of our hearts sometimes comes out of us and causes us to do crazy things and think crazy things things, because the tribulation of this world is sometimes simply overwhelming. Jesus knew this, and in John 16, he reminds us that we live in a world of sin that is plagued with death and destruction and evil, and in John 16, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Listen to what he says. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The pressures and confusions of our trying world weigh down on us many times. And maybe you're sitting here this morning feeling it even now. Maybe there's something in your life that you're thinking to yourself, I I am in despair today. Maybe you're at home and you're thinking, this is why I didn't come to church because I can't be around people. In Romans, it says that we all get to these moments of despair. And sometimes, sometimes in Romans, it tells us that we don't even know how to speak, how to even pray, and the spirit inside of us just groans. Have you ever groaned? Oh. Or, or you breathe heavy. Oh, sigh. This is a world in which we live. It causes us to be filled with crushing emotions, sometimes of despair, and it happens to all of us. Jesus warns us that this despair that we feel can even crush the strongest faith. For some people, they have this incredibly deep deep faith. Even if you have incredible faith, you can still be pressed down by these moments of despair. In fact, he uses a parable of the soils to illustrate how this goes down. Remember the parable of the soil, the scatter, the seeds, and he goes out and he plants the seeds, and some seeds land in different kinds of soil, and the soil was to indicate what kind of hearts receive the truth of God. One of those soils, it was was thorny soil, it was rocky soil, and, and the seed takes root, but it only takes root for a little while, and when it comes up, it's choked, and you know what chokes it? You know what chokes that faith from growing? Despair. 
This is what Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately these people, what do they do, church? They fall away. It's too much. It's too heavy. Tribulations of life bring despair to the heart. There was a study done in 2020. This is the world that um, uh, they, were, they were analyzing how the world had changed from early 1900s until the 2000s. And the study was done in 2000 because we found out that we're living longer, so we must be doing something right. But when they did the study, they found a very interesting tidbit of information. Throughout the 1900s, the lifespan went up. Do you know in the, in the early 1900s, the lifespan was mid-50s. By the time we get to the end of the 1900s, we're, we're cranking on 80. We're knocking on the door of 80 years old. Something must be going right, but something weird happened in the 90s, and it has continued to our day. The statistics took a U-turn, and they found that people were not no longer knocking on the door of 80. It started to go down again, and here's what uh, these, st- these statistics showed, especially in one group, starkly changes the statistic of growing older. And this statistic particularly was in middle-aged, non-Hispanic whites with no college degrees. Intentionally or mistakenly, this 45 to 55-year-old age group was cutting their lives short through alcohol, drug abuse, or simply mistaking overdose. The conclusion of this study, listen to this, vanishing jobs, disintegrating families, and other social stressors had unleashed a rising tide of fatal despair. Fatal despair. And I want to tell you, that has only increased in our young people during the time of COVID. Statistics show that one to four during COVID-19 over these last two years, one in five youth under 20 admit that they have serious challenges in dealing with feelings of despair. Our world is plagued with despair. I think it's one of the Satan's greatest tools against us. And this is why we must learn to figure out how to deal with it. We have to learn to figure out how God digs into the soil of our heart and churns it up so that we can learn to deal with despair because the fact of the matter is despair will not go away. And it, and it happens to even the strongest of us. So when despair comes... We need to be the kind of people that understand how to have our faith, a faith that remains. Now, John has lived through a very short life of ministry. He's accomplished a lot through his short life of ministry. He's fulfilled the prophet Isaiah uh, prophecy 700 years earlier. There's going to come a guy who's going to say, make straight the way for the path of the Messiah. Make straight the paths in the wilderness. Fulfillment of this prophecy has come, and now he is pointed to the Messiah. And now John sits in a prison. He's thrown into a prison because he simply preached against the authorities of his day. Uh, We're going to get to that in just a minute, but he pointed out the faults in the leadership of his day, and they had it. So they put him in prison so they could stop talking. But the one thing that remained of John's faith was his renewed view of who Jesus was. John's message was always, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think... That is the secret of why John overcame his despair. He was willing to go through whatever he had to go through so that he could see Jesus increase 
as he decreased. Here's our main passage. It's in Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> as we look into our scripture this morning, you can follow along in your, uh, on your tablet or uh, in, your, in your Bibles. Matthew 11 verse 2. Here's what it says. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, remember he didn't get to see them. He heard about them secondhand. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, get this, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? or should we look for someone else? Now, you might look at that and you might say, whoa, John the Baptist said this? How can somebody with such deep faith, taking on the authorities of his day, <coughs> somebody who had just baptized Jesus Christ and seen the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How could he go through all this, end up in prison and say to his disciples, hey, listen, take a message to Jesus and just ask him one question. Are you really the guy? Or should we wait for somebody else? But I don't think he was losing his faith. <coughs> Sorry. I don't think he was losing his faith. I think he was experiencing despair that caused confusion. Or how about flip it, confusion causing him to despair. I, the reason I say that is because when his question goes to Jesus, he says, are you the one who we should, we should be looking, are you the one promised or should we be looking for someone else? See, his faith is not faltering. He says, should, should we wait for somebody else? I mean, I'm on board if we should wait for somebody else. But it's almost like this confusion causes him to despair. Great people of God, great theologians, great pastors, great men and women of, of God have despaired throughout history. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Bunyan, my, one of my favorite guys in the world, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Soren Kierkegaard, C.S. Lewis, all of these amazing men, all of these amazing theologians have been challenged in their ministry because of their despair. Overwork, burdens of ministry, personal health, uh, just overcome them <coughs> at times, thank you, brother, and cause them to despair. One person who was on, on this uh, despairing chain was Charles Wesley. How many of you have heard of Charles Wesley? Uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Wesley, yes, he was another one. But Charles Spurgeon had great moments of despair. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? This guy was called the Prince of Preachers. If you ever read his stuff, he was an amazing preacher of God's word. His wife wrote at one point in his ministry, listen to this, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason itself seemed to totter on her throne, and we sometimes feared he would never preach again. It's amazing what despair will do, right? But the greatest theologian, perhaps, that suffered from despair, you all have heard of, and his name was Elijah. Elijah is a great prophet of the Old Testament. Today, you're going to get to find out a little bit about Elijah's life. Elijah, by the way, was arguably one of the most powerful prophets of the Old Testament. You can find his story in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah spoke out against the rulers of his day, and the rulers of his day were 
a king and a queen. The queen was worse than the king, but the king was really bad. Do you know what the king and queen's names were? King was Ahab, and the queen was Jezebel. Nasty. These were wicked kings and queens of Israel. They worshiped false idols, and they forced their population to worship false idols. On top of that, they intentionally killed any prophet that spoke out in the name of God, Yahweh. They went after them to kill them. What they didn't know was there, there was a prophet named Obadiah who went out and gathered all the prophets. I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but he went out and gathered all the prophets of Yahweh and he put them in a cave so they're all in one place. You know, if, if you find the cave, you're pretty much, that's it. Like, they're all gone. You'd think scatter would be better. Split, split up and, and, and conquer. But Obadiah decides he's going to, and he gathers like 100 different pr- prophets, puts them in this cave and keeps them fed and alive. Elijah doesn't know this. So Elijah wakes up one morning and goes, hey, where's Jim? Where's Sam? Where's Jerry? Where's all these guys? We were prophets together. Where are they all? And Elijah begins to believe he's the only one left. Elijah prophesied against Ahab and Jezebel, kept up with what he should be doing, even challenged their false prophets to a duel. Do you remember this story? He said, okay, let's decide who's the most powerful God. And he says, all the prophets of Baal, all you false prophets of this God Baal, you build an altar and you cry on Baal and he'll send fire down and lick up this altar and the offering that's on top of it. And you can have as long as you want. And so they decide they're gonna, they're gonna do the duel. So they build the altar and the prophets of Baal, they dance around and they cut themselves and they do all kinds of wacky and weird things trying to get a hold of the attention of their God. And Elijah mocks them the whole time. This is a great story. He said, maybe your God's gone on a walk. Or maybe your God's, literally, he says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. It's hilarious. And they're like all, now they're all bleeding, they're all cut, and they're all laying on the ground, they're, you know, blood loss. (coughs) Half a day they do this. And Elijah says, okay, you guys are done. Let me see what I can do. So Elijah builds the altar, and then he creates a moat around it, and he, and he floods it with, with water. Three different times he just pours. I don't know if you know this, but water doesn't burn. He douses everything with water. And then he prays, God, for your sake and for the sake of those around, show us your greatness. And fire comes down. It burns up the offering. It burns up the altar, and it burns up the water in the trench. <laughs> it's a great story. Prophets of Baal lose. Elijah wins. And you'd think at this moment, Elijah would go, sweet. Everything is great. God is on his throne, and even though I'm the only one left, that's a pretty cool miracle. I can live on that for a while, and that's not what happens. Jezebel finds out that he killed all of these prophets. She finds out that he embarrassed her. And she says, I want Elijah's head on my desk in the morning. And Elijah runs for his life. Elijah runs up to a mountain called Mount Horeb. You may have heard this mountain before. He runs up to this mountain and he's alone. And he's tired. And he's hungry. And you know what God does? He feeds him twice. Gives him breakfast and lunch. 
an angel comes down with, had to be incredible food. Like heavenly food has to be really good, right? Not manna. This is like a step up. He eats the food. And then he goes into a cave. And he says, God, take my life. I'm done here. I'm too old for this blank. I can't do it anymore. So God comes to visit him four different times. Comes to him in a whirlwind, comes to him in an earthquake, comes to him in a, in a fire, and he steps out in front of this cave each time going, God, just speak to me, show me something, show me something, and there, God's not in any of those things. But the next thing that happens is there's a small wind, and Elijah opens his ears and hears the voice of God in the still small wind. And God says, Elijah, you're not done yet. There's more to do. There's some things you don't know. I've got 100 prophets in a cave down there. I've got 7,000 followers of me that will not bend the knee to Baal, and they will not follow Ahab or Jezebel's prophets. I have a contingent. You don't know it because they're all in hiding, but they're there. And what's even better, I've got a replacement for you. You need a vacation, Elijah. And by the way, Elijah got the greatest vacation in the world. He got to go to heaven in a chariot. He didn't die. Another part of the story. Elijah was replaced by Elisha. God gives him all of this information in a still small voice because Elijah is despairing to the point of death. He said, I just want you to take my life. I'm just tired. And it doesn't seem like we're winning. And God says, I have a greater plan. Trust me. Elijah and John are very similar. Let me give you some similarities. Powerful influences on their culture, powerful influences in their, uh, to the authorities of their, uh, of their day, but both dealing with incredible despair. Both looked the same. Both lived in the wilderness. Both wore camel skins. Both ate wild honey. Both were like uh, survivor man. Both, Elijah and John. Elijah and John both had the same message, message of repentance. Elijah and John both threatened by authorities. I'm going to kill you if you don't shut up. Both threatened by the, the, the authorities to stop talking about God. Both had incredible deep faith in God but despaired almost to the point of death because they were confused as to what was going on around them. Both were alone. They did their ministry alone. They were alone in the wilderness, and they were alone in their despair. Elijah on the mountain asking for God to take his life. John was in prison for almost a year. Can you imagine waking up every morning in a dungeon for doing nothing wrong? Elijah and John, no rebuke from God, either of them, in their confusion. And finally, another interesting parallel both passed on their ministry to somebody greater who took it further than they did. Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah. Did you know that? Count them. Elijah did a certain amount. Elisha did double the amount. And John the Baptist passed on his ministry. Do you know who John the Baptist passed on his ministry to? Jesus. 
It says in Scripture that as soon as John the Baptist was taken into prison, Jesus began to preach. And you know what he preached? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Same message of John the Baptist. As soon as one was silenced, another came out. John was surprised about how this was all going down. But he was not surprised that he was fulfilling the role of Elijah. He thought that he was this promised figure that God had promised about. You remember the last verse of, of the Old Testament in Malachi said, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike a land, the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is what everybody's waiting for. This is when they had Passover, they left an empty chair at the table. Do you know who the empty chair was left there for? Elijah, because they expected Elijah to come back. It's a la- literally the last verse of the Old Testament. And then 400 years of zip, nada, nothing until the Gospels, until the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that an angel not only prophesied the birth of Jesus, but also prophesied the birth of John the Baptist. And here's how that goes. Luke 1.17. He will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Talking of John the Baptist. To turn the hearts of their fathers to the children. Does that sound familiar? And the disobedient to the wisdom and, <clears throat> and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel comes to Elizabeth and says, John the Baptist, your son is going to be the fulfillment of that last Old Testament verse. We all read it. We all leave our table with a, with a chair every Passover. That chair is going to be filled with your kid. John lived his life fulfilling this role. And in John 1.22, he knew he was a, a, a fulfillment of prophecy. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. The Pharisees were saying, you're a little bit of a threat to us, John the Baptist. We've got to tell them who you are. So who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? We know these people are prophesied in the Old Testament, but who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, verse 23, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John was certain, like all the other disciples, that he had a part to play in God's plan to introduce the Messiah. He gave his life to this belief. Everything he did was around this one belief that he would prophesy about the Messiah. And Jesus comes on the scene and he baptizes Jesus and he's going, sweet, let the movie begin. And he's sitting there waiting for the, you know, that big sound you get, you know. You know, he's waiting for that big moment in the movie theater. And then it's going to start and he's got his popcorn and his drink. And he's waiting for the moment. But an army never shows. And Jesus doesn't seem to have anybody but these 12 losers following him around. Jesus never seemed to be in a hurry to establish a kingdom at all. In fact, Jesus wasn't in a hurry at all. He's talking to lepers and lame and blind people. Come on, let's take on the authorities. John's going, I've taken on the authorities. Jesus, it's time for you to step up. When's when's it going to start? And then he gets arrested. By the way, do you know why John was arrested? He was arrested because he was preaching out against the authorities of his day. Now, listen, if this story isn't enough to cause you to despair, I don't know what is. Herod was a wicked king. Herod was a half-breed. There's a bust of him, so this is a, a 
depiction of what he probably looked like. Wicked guy. Herod was well known in history as a wicked individual, half Arab, half Jew. He called himself Herod the Great. How low of a self-esteem do you have to be to call yourself Herod the Great? I'd like for you all to call me Craig the Great from now on, right? You just go, oh, Craig, you know. Nobody did that. Like, it's, okay, Herod, you were Herod the Great. Called himself King of the Jews. Huh. Herod was a wicked king, and he arrested John the Baptist. Let me tell you some things that, John, that Herod did. He killed his mother-in-law. Killed his wife, drowned his sons. You know why he drowned his sons? He didn't want anyone to take over for him. He was going to be the king forever. One of the rulers in Rome said about Herod, it'd be better to be a pig in Herod's pen than a son under his roof. (laughs) Everybody knew this guy was bad news. But he liked the women. And so he married a few. And one of the ones he married was his brother's wife. What a guy. His sister-in-law, whose name was Herodias. And John the Baptist said, time out. That is wicked beyond belief. You can't just steal your brother's wife and take her as your own. That's wrong. And Herod said, wait a doggone minute, you can't talk to me like that. And so he throws him in prison because not only was he preaching against Herod and what he did, but everybody heard the bad, you know, they heard the the drama about it. So Herod couldn't shut him up. Herod actually kind of liked John the Baptist. He liked listening to him, but he didn't like what he was saying. And so he threw him in prison so he would stop talking. The whole story is given to us in Mark 6. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod could live with it. He wanted him to stop talking about it. But Herodias, she hated John the Baptist. She got more power married to Herod than this, you know, Philip. So she marries She marries uh, Herod, and she hates John. And the one thing in life she wants, she wants John dead. But Herod won't kill him, because Herod kind of liked him. One day, Herod has a great banquet for his nobles, his military leaders, influential people. And he has them all, and and he throws this big banquet. It's days long. And one of the climaxing moments was he had his own daughter come and do a dance for everybody. A sensual dance for all the men. And the men liked it. And Herod was was glad because the the people that he invited, his guests, liked to see his daughter dance. This guy was a pig. They liked to see his daughter dance. So when she finished her dance, Herod said, all my guests are so pleased. Listen, you can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom. Verse 23, same passage. He vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Listen, that is quite a dance, wouldn't you say? And she went out and asked her mother Herodias, for what should I ask? What do you think her mother wanted more than anything else? I want John the Baptist's head on the platter on my desk in the morning. Hmm. Sound familiar? And that's how John came to an untimely death. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executor with orders to bring, executioner, 
with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head to the, on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. By the way, Herod regretted doing this, and the minute he hears of what Jesus is doing, he thinks it's John the Baptist raised from the dead, and he wants to desperately see Jesus, but he never did until Jesus was crucified, as far as we know. Listen, I can imagine John is wasting away in a dungeon for a year, thinking to himself, I'm going to be let free. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. I've got to be a crucial player in this. I can't, be wait, I can't wait to be set free. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a guard shows up at his door and says, John, time's up, buddy. Let's go. And he's going, what in the world? This can't possibly be happening. What, what, what happened? How come Herod changed his mind? I thought he was just letting me waste away in here for a little while. He said, no, there's quite a dance going on, quite a party going on. You missed it all. But apparently the kid wants your head on a platter. Can you imagine the confusion of John the Baptist laying his head on that block, looking at the executioner and thinking to himself, what in the world is going on? This can't be possible. Where is the kingdom? Where is the promised Messiah? Where, where is this kingdom that I'm supposed to have a major part in? Isaiah told people I was coming. Elijah, I fulfilled the role of Elijah. Come on, Elijah gets to go to heaven in a chariot. Where's my chariot? He didn't see any miracles. He was sure that Jesus was a Messiah. And he was sure he would be let out. But after time, nothing happened. And he was left in a dark, lonely, and terrible place. Confused and despaired. Passerbys might even say he lost his faith. I can't even imagine his confusion. But it is interesting to me if you back up a little bit in history and you see the way that John, Jesus answered John's question, are you the one that we are waiting for or should we wait for somebody else? Jesus answers this way. Listen to this. Jesus gives him truth founded through hundreds of years of God's word. He answered him and said, this is in Matthew 11, verse 4, go and tell John this. Tell him what you hear and tell him what you see. The blind receive their sight the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised to life. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know what Jesus does for John? He doesn't say yes or no. He doesn't say, John, relax. I've got this all under control. Yes, you're right. Everything's good. He gives him scripture. You know why? Because John was convinced of scripture. So when Jesus answers him, he says, listen, the prophecy is the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are healed. The prophecy is true, and you have lived your life perfectly. No rebuke. Instead, all he gets is grace and truth. Do you remember this? Grace and truth. The grace is, John, there's no one better than you. You are the best that, that God has given to humankind. The grace is, you have fulfilled your life well. You have fulfilled prophecy well. You've done your job really well. The grace is, God massages John's ego and lets him know you have played your role perfectly. And the truth is this. 
even in the middle of your confusion, John, even when you put your head on that block in a little while, don't be confused to the point of despair. My plan is still going on perfectly. My, my will is still being accomplished. My purposes are still being fulfilled. You are playing your part faithfully. Jesus refers to John this way, a bruised reed will not break and a smoldering wick will not be snuffed out. <laughs> That's John. So my question to you today is simply this. Are you despairing? Have you despaired to the point of weeping on a hospital floor so that at the other end of the hall people can hear? I mean, is there moments that have broken you? Are you going through one now? The bottom line is you're in good company. You're not alone. Even Jesus suffered to the point of despair. Even God incarnate. When they came to told, tell Jesus that John the Baptist was dead, <laughs> and they told him, you're not going to believe why. Herod, that wicked king, wanted to impress his guests. And so that innocent little girl was used to bring John's head on a platter to her wicked mother. Can you imagine how Jesus' heart must have fallen? And it did. Because we're told in Scripture immediately that Jesus tried to get away by himself. He needed some alone time, and he couldn't. He couldn't get away. Instead, 5,000 people follow him into the wilderness. He's just going, I just want to be alone. Just give me a few minutes. Just, I just got some bad news. I just got to process. <laughs> 5,000 people follow him. And so you know what he does? As only the heart of Jesus can do, in the middle of his despair, he teaches them. And when he's done teaching, he looks at them and he feels terrible for them because they've been out there all day and they haven't had any lunch. So you know what he does? He feeds the 5,000 with bread and fish, multiplies it, teaches the disciples a little tr lesson on faith. And the whole time he's doing that, maybe you'll read scripture a little differently now because you understand the whole time he's feeding the 5,000, his heart is broken. Not able to process. And I know that because as soon as he's done teaching and he sends the people away, bellies full, cared for. Jesus needs to be cared for. And he goes up into a mountain and he spends the entire night in prayer. He says to his disciples, go away on a boat. Just, just go to the other side of the lake. You guys, you, you, you people, 5,000 have been following, you go away, I just need some alone time. And the only time he can get is overnight. So he walks up as dusk comes in and spends the entire night in prayer. And then a storm comes up and he walks out and he saves his disciples by walking on the water. You remember that story? That all happens. But there's five minutes that he has to himself. Grace of God to bless those around him even when he was in despair himself blows me away. And it reminds me of a song that's old and we don't sing anymore, but it's one of my favorite. It's called Grace is Greater, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. And here's one line that rolls through my head and it goes like this. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. 
Grace that is greater yet grace untold points to our refuge, the mighty cross. Jesus knows our despair. And when that despair comes and it threatens our soul with ultimate and infinite loss, some people fall away from their faith. But if your faith is churned up in the difficult soils of life and deep in your faith, you will find that you only grow stronger through your despair. There's possibility for your, for your, for your root to grow into a strong into a strong tree. So what? Number one, watch out. Confusion can fester and lead to despair. Trust that God is in control. Don't ever think your plan is the right plan because most of the time, it ain't. God's, God's plan may change your plans tomorrow. And his plans are always better than our plans. We're about to celebrate the fifth anniversary of a church that I said I'll never help out with five years ago. Three different times. I said, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. I'm not gifted for that. I'm gifted for other things. I haven't done that before. I've done other things before. And now five years later, God has shown me this is exactly what I needed to be doing. God's plans may change our plans tomorrow. There may be factors you simply don't know about. (laughs) This is what blows me away. John was confused because he thought he was the only uh, instrument, the the, the perfect instrument of God to set up a kingdom, and he would play a major part in it, but he can't speak for a year. He's stuck in a dungeon. And then some yahoo comes down with an ax and takes his head off. He had to be the most confused person in the world. There were factors going on that John didn't know about. Elijah was crushed with confusion. All the prophets are gone. Nobody's following Jesus. Nobody's following God anymore. I alone am left. Literally, it's what he says. So God visits him with a still, small voice and says, no, 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 you don't know all the facts. I got 100 guys in a cave down there, and I've got 7,000 who will never bend the knee to Baal. Don't Don't be confused. God's promises and his plans are unthwartable. God always has an agenda. Did you know that the statistic for February 2022 is this? One Christian is killed every 15 minutes for their faith. That's today. We don't know about that because the news tells us all kinds of different things they want us to know about. But the fact of the matter is, one Christian every 15 minutes. You're finding out a little bit about what's happening to the Yagers in, uh, in, in China right now, right? Didn't know much of that was going on. These poor Muslims that are in internment camps getting their nails pulled out of their hands, tortured, never heard from again. Same thing in North Korea. Don't get caught with any scripture in North Korea. You'll be taken away and never heard from again. There's intern camps, concentration camps in North Korea right now. This is going on all around the world. If you want to know more about it, go to voiceofthemartyrs.com and you will find that there's a lot of horrors going on in our world today that you don't know anything about because the news wants to tell you all the stuff they want to sell you and not the real news. China is burning churches today. 
Afghanistan's Christians are being, even today, hunted down. Afghanistan, this Taliban group, is now the 13th strongest army in the world because we gave them all of our weapons. And you know how they're using them? They're using them to hunt down Christians today. But our message must never be confused. Church, he must increase and we must decrease. And that, if that means we lose our lives, our rights, or our privileges preaching the name of God and the truth in his word, then that's what must happen. He must increase, and we must decrease. Maybe we should ask whether our lives matter this way. How does what I'm doing today matter for Jesus' agenda? How does what I'm doing today matter for Jesus' agenda? I think that's what Elijah would ask. I think that's what John would have asked. And I think that's probably what we should ask. Because whatever you're doing today needs to matter for the long term. I got a call several weeks ago from a family that, that matters a lot to me. And they told me a friend of mine had died. He woke up that morning, he was fine, had a heart attack, and he passed away. <laughs> he wasn't much older than me. And it surprised everybody. And so the family started calling and sharing the information, and I was on the list. And do you know why I was on the list of the people they called? Because they called me and said, Craig, we just wanted to let you know Jeff passed away this morning, and we just wanted to say thank you for leading Jeff to the Lord. Listen, whatever you're doing today, if it doesn't include what's on Jesus' agenda, it's temporary and it will pass away. But if you're investing for Jesus Christ, it's amazing the difference that you will make in people's lives, and you won't even know it. So the question is, what, what am I doing today, and does it matter for Jesus' agenda? Number two, constant reminders of what is true help in our despair. It is so easy to get confused in the tribulation of life. It's easy to get stuck in the groans. Don't get stuck believing the temporary is all that there is. Romans 8.18 says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in, in us. And then it says, for in this hope we are saved. Despair will visit you in this fallen world. Don't be shaken. Don't be broken. Revisit the truth regularly and be reminded of what is important. Elijah was told there's still thousands of people that follow me. You're not alone. John was told that you, the, the plan of God is being fulfilled to a T. Don't fret, don't worry. Everything is going according to plan and we will only benefit when we remember God's plans and his purposes can't be thwarted regardless of the chaos around us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Remember, his plans are still being, still being accomplished. And remember, that's what is true can help us when we are confused. And last one, remember God visits us most tenderly when we are in despair. Elijah on the mountain fed twice by God, breakfast and lunch, and then visited not in the chaos but with a still, small voice. John in the dungeon. John, you fulfilled your job well. Four 700 years ago, you, you were prophesied, and you hit the mark. Way to go, bud. The truth is despair may cause us to doubt God, but he is still in control, and he's never left our side at any time. 
Do you know the story of It Is Well With My Soul? This guy named Horatio Spafford wrote this song. We sing it, and it's a great song, and we've even updated it with a little chorus that has some of the words in it. Let me tell you about why this song was written. Horatio Spafford knew something about life's unexpected challenges. He was a successful attorney and a real estate investor who lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire. Around the same time, he lost his beloved four-year-old son who died of scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation would help his family heal and do them all some good, he sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship to England, and he planned to join them after some pressing business needed to be handled at home. However, while the ship went across the Atlantic Ocean, it had a terrible collision, and it sank. More than 200 people lost their lives, among them all four of Horatio Spafford's precious little daughters. His wife, Anna, survived alone. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began this way, saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England to meet his wife. At one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, unaware uh, aware of the tragedy that had stuck the, struck the Spafford family, came to get Horatio because he wanted to show, them where the sh show him where the ship had gone down, right over the spot where the where the tragedy occurred. As Horatio thought about his daughter's words of comfort and hope filled his mind and he wrote these words down and they become a well-beloved hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Perhaps we cannot always say everything is well in aspects of our lives. There's always going to be tribulation and trials, chaos around us, and sometimes even tragedy. But with a deepening and surrendered faith to God and a trust in his divine help, we can confidently also say, it is well with my soul. Father, you've given us your word full of hope and help. You've given us men and women who have demonstrated a deepening faith through the trials and the tribulation of life. You have showed us, even in the middle of despair, how faith remains and doesn't have to be choked out by the tribulations of this world. So, Father, my prayer for our church and for your people around the world who are going through such suffering and turmoil and pain because of the sinful world in which we live, maybe because of nothing at all which we have done, but simply having faith in you for which some are even being hunted down in their homes. May you rise up a church rooted firmly in the truth of your word, and may the seeds of faith that are planted around in this world of chaos only bring forth a stronger, devoted church, a people who are committed to following you, who believe deeply in their heart that no matter what comes, it is well with our soul. Take us from here and may those who are going through despair even now 
those who have lost loved ones who are going through sick, sickness and disease and who are dealing with the uncertainties of life, where their confusion is leading them to a point of despair, may you visit them in a tender way like you did with Elijah and remind them that you are still in control. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.